0: If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast@gmail.com gmail.com or follow us on any of our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LiveOnFourLegsPodcast and on Twitter at LiveOnFourLegsPod. And away we go. You're listening to Live On Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr.
1: Stone Gosselin. Fucking camera in the drum. Mr. Boom Gasper, You can call me Al, you can call me Ed, you just, just fucking call me, why do
0: Hey everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live Pearl Jam podcast as we continue on it's Wrigley month and we're right smack dab in the middle of it tomorrow we're going to have our night two of 2016 episode and today we're going to have a really special guest on so Randy Sobel over here John Ferraro over there and uh, John why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the guests that we're going to be speaking with today.
2: Yeah, our our guest today is Jonathan Cohen. Uh, Jonathan literally wrote the book on Pearl Jam as uh, he uh, authored the PJ20 book back in 2011, which is the, the Bible of Pearl Jam. We use it all the time on the show. We refer to it all the time. Uh, back in the, the 2000s, he was a senior editor at Billboard Magazine. Talks about that a little bit. And then he went on to book the musical acts for Jimmy Fallon, starting with uh, The Late Night Show in 2009, Uh, moving on to The Tonight Show until 2015. Uh, He's currently a writer for Variety, and uh, he notably wrote the definitive article about Pearl Jam's Gigaton listening party back in January.
0: So yeah, the first thing that we asked him was, uh, what was the first time that he ever interacted with anybody in the band? So let's take a listen to what he had to say.
3: So I had a few encounters with members of the band just as a fan back in the mid nineties. Um, but it was not until I was like, you know, a pseudo professional journalist that, um, I was able to, you know, work with the guys or meet them kind of in a professional way. Um, I believe the first time I interviewed one of the guys was in 2000. Um, I was working at billboard at the time, it was around the time that the first batch of authorized bootlegs came out so it was you know post russ Gilday, day um after the american leg of the tour um the later part of that year and i interviewed jeff for a big article just about the year that they had been through um kind of the the next step into releasing shows and just sort of where they were uh, as a band at that point and um, they were really not doing a lot of press at that time and jeff and i spoke for quite a while probably over an hour and that was kind of the beginning of you know a a really wonderful both professional and personal relationship Um, something i still feel extremely lucky about to this day
0: that and that's awesome like uh yeah you're you're right they weren't doing a lot of press at the time and binaural was very under the radar um so how uh how did it all come about that you got a chance to uh write on the pj20 book
3: okay so um you know this is we're cutting now to about nine years uh after my first kind of foray into, you know, working with the guys, speaking to them, doing stories about them and gaining their trust. And this is something that I had kicked around. Uh, It had always been an idea in my head to maybe one day write something about Pearl Jam. And for a variety of reasons, it just was never really the right time to drop everything and pursue it. But as luck would have it, um, Toward the end of 2009, I got wind that Cameron Crowe was working on a film about the band, and shortly thereafter, I received a call from Pearl Jam's management, more or less just asking, hey, listen, we're going to do a book accompaniment to this. Do you want to do it? And it, it was weirdly just that simple and you know i said yes right away and we dove right in because we really didn't have a lot of time to get it done in time for the 20th anniversary but that's that's really how it came about it was it was just a, a quick ask and a quick yes and you know i don't know that we would have ever gotten to that point had we not really built up you know a, a relationship of trust and Rapport and um, just it's a relationship really built on music um, over the course of that prior decade. But again, um, I I will re- remember that call for all my life because uh, it's something that I had thought about and maybe even dreamed a little bit about. But sure enough, one day the opportunity presented itself. Did you
2: have access to everything like in the vaults and the archives that they just did they just open everything up to you and say, hey, whatever you want to whatever you want to throw in here. Here's everything.
3: Well, it wasn't quite like that, because, again, keep in mind that Cameron's movie was was in the works for a while. And um, Cameron had already started to kind of storyboard this and he knew the general way that the narrative was going to flow. So. My book was not exactly starting from scratch because we had the benefit of some of the legwork that Cameron and his team had already done. Um and when you kind of talk about archival stuff, the, the visual component of the book was was spearheaded by Regan Hagar, who of course is Stone Gossard's bandmate and Brad, but is someone who has worked in the organization for a long time on the visual side. So Regan worked in tandem um, with management and some of the crew that have been with the band forever to pull out some really amazing archival visual stuff um, that helped tell the story that we were telling with words because, you know, the book is basically structured as a year-by-year oral history. But just as much as we wanted the interviews and the words to be revelatory, we wanted the visuals to be as well. And that's where Regan came in. So it wasn't really like me digging in boxes to find, you know, these these gems that no one had ever seen. Um, but Regan did have some access to that stuff uh, and chose the things that he thought would fit best along with all the words. Yeah, it worked out great. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a major source of what we do on our show. K- keep going back to that and looking and, and seeing all, not just the artifacts, but like the official data and things that were going through either Jeff or Mike or Stone's head at the time. Like you guys really sunk in uh, pretty deep into that. So, what, like, what do you remember uh, about doing those interviews and and you know just just collecting the information for that?
3: Well, my goal first and foremost with the narrative part of the book was to talk about the music because for so many years. That was not the most important thing that people talked about when it came to Pearl Jam. It was things like, why are you fighting Ticketmaster? Why aren't you touring? The focus was on other things. And the music at the end of the day is what brings everyone together to come see them night after night and year after year. So that's what I really wanted to dig into. I wanted to talk to the guys about, to the best of their recollection, how certain songs were created. Um, What was the inspiration for them? how the, how the music has evolved for them over time. So, that was first uh that was my primary goal was to really get at the heart of the music and hopefully get the guys to talk about the music in a way that they really hadn't before. Um beyond that, you know, there were a few nerdy fan things that we wanted to clear up, some chronology things, um some holes in kind of the the story. Um, Or maybe some apocryphal tales that we weren't sure how true they may have been. Um, So we did try to clean some of that up. But really, we were just looking to flesh out the story of how this wonderful music was made, and how that aspect of the band's creativity um, was born and still continued to flourish.
0: Do you remember, like, one thing that you said before going and, and writing the book that I I want to uncover this mystery? Was there one thing that you were really interested in getting the facts on?
3: Well, um, you know, the, the oft-told story of Ed's first week in Seattle is something that there really hadn't been a ton of documentary evidence for. It was really just kind of the guys talking about Ed came up and on the seventh day we played a show – And what we discovered is that um, that wasn't quite true. And this was not in the interest of like dispelling anything that people had come to believe. We just wanted to present the full picture. So, you know, we dug into some contemporary records. um, We jogged a few people's memories and we were able to reconstruct that very early period of the band in more detail than, than had been previously put out there. So we were very pleased to do that.
2: You talked about, you know, building the trust, you know, back starting in 2000 when you talked to Jeff and they were notoriously untrusting of journalists and everything throughout the nineties. Talk a little bit about how you were able to build up that trust. I think you mentioned, you know, that you wanted to to talk about the music and I think that probably had a lot to do with it.
3: Yeah, I I think so. And again, at the end of the day, I'm just a fan. I, I was lucky to be a music journalist for that period of time. But that was always my approach to this is that, um, you know, I was someone who could be a sympathetic ear, but could also write about issues that were important to them. Um, I could talk music with them. I could talk politics or activism or whatever it was that was on their mind in a way that was going to get at, you know, whatever it was that they wanted to convey without clouding it with other things, um, so we just kind of developed that trust based on, listen, I'm here to listen to what you have to say. Um, this is not about me digging into any salacious details or um, trying to bait you into a question that you don't really want to answer. So once I think that was established, there was a level of comfortability that when there was something to talk about or a new release or something important that was on their mind, that um they knew they could talk to me and we would put it out there
0: so you said you i mean obviously you had to have been a fan before all this went down and and getting to interview them in 2000 but you said you had some interactions with them in the 90s like how how often were you circulating and going to shows back then
3: i mean as much as i could so i grew up in akron ohio went to college in bloomington indiana and you know, that was at a time when there weren't there weren't a lot of Pearl Jam shows to go to. So Ooh. I I went, you know, everywhere from Toledo, Ohio to New Orleans to see them in that era, um, and everywhere in between. So once in a while, you know, I'd be hanging around out in the parking lot or or, you know, behind the venue or something and you'd catch a quick glimpse of, of one of the guys or say a quick hi to him. Um, I got to chat with Stone a little bit when Brad toured in the fall of nineteen ninety seven. Uh, you know, at a dinky club in Columbus, Ohio. Um, But that was just, you know, me kind of the nerdy and tenacious fan trying to get a little extra glimpse of something after traveling to a show. Um,
2: Yeah, I saw that tour in Athens, Georgia.
3: Yeah, right on, right on. So, you know, that that was an era where, you know, if there was a show, you went where the shows were. If we were lucky enough to have a side project thing, you went, just because it was an extension of this band that we all love.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I can only imagine. You know, I, John is more in that generation where he grew up with ten and verses. I'm a little bit later. I st- I kind of started in the yield generation and sort of Riot Act kind of peered my head back in. But just getting to be around that, kind of in their prime, and at least in the '90s, I, I mean, has to be probably the the best time that you could you know, get, get a glimpse of them. So yeah, you're talking magical, like, right? you're talking like 96, 98 era. Uh, uh, no, even Toledo before, or... even okay. before
3: um, I was at the first night of the uh, voters for choice benefit show in DC in mm-hmm. January of 95. Um, I actually made my way somehow into the press conference that was held that day, um, snapped a, a really great photo of Eddie which has appeared in a few places. Um, so, yeah, I saw them a, a few times in 95. Was it the Milwaukee shows? Um, was it the New Orleans show that I mentioned later in October of that year? Um, and absolutely, those those were magical, magical shows. Um, because beyond just kind of like the scarcity of them and not knowing where they would turn up next and when, um, you're right, musically, that was just um, an absolute peak time. Jack Irons was new to the band. Vitology was new to the discography and the shows were starting to become absolutely epic. Not that they weren't already, but now we're talking like they've got three albums of material to draw from and the shows are still never the same every night. So, um, that it was absolutely just a a wondrous time to be seeing the band.
0: All right. Uh, why don't we, why don't we uh, dig into, uh, the Wrigley show from 2013 a little bit because you had a special spot there. So how did, uh, well, actually, let's let's kind of let's kind of go back a little bit. Um, when you were working with the band on, on this PJ Twenty book, was there a sense that this was the ultimate goal? Like, did you did you ever get a chance to talk to them? Like, if you were to ever play one venue, what would it be? And I think for Ed's sake, he would have to say Wrigley because that's where basically where he grew up and, and has has all his childhood memories. But uh, did, did was this a goal for them? going back to, you know, 2009 when you were working on this.
3: Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I don't recall it ever specifically being mentioned, but I can see why it was something that they worked their way up to because, you know, they they've professed their love for playing places like the Garden and the Spectrum in Philly, these and Boston Garden, these, you know, historic sporting arenas. Um and so, you know, Classic baseball stadiums were kind of the next logical step. There was a period of time there where, like, there weren't shows at Wrigley. There weren't shows at Fenway. And suddenly it became a thing. It became more viable. And it was more realistic to actually think about doing something like that. So um I think it was sort of just a matter of time until it, it was something that would make financial sense for them. And, you know, they felt ready to do it. But... um it, it it made sense to me when it was first announced that, um, that they were taking the plunge because as you mentioned, um, Wrigley and Chicago are such a part of, of Ed's life. And what better way to sort of close that circle than to play in the outfield of, of your favorite ballpark?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So your day, talk about your day and, and what all transpired, uh, you know with with the weather and and just kind of where where and what you were doing that day,
3: sure, so I was only able to fly out day of show, which I had reservations about at the time because I was worried precisely about what wound up happening, which is just a huge midwestern storm, screwing everything up, and sure enough, that's what happened, so I remember just sitting and like having like the blood drained out of me at Newark Airport as the flight was getting pushed back and back and back and back and checking in with, you know, friends on the ground there to find out what was going on and I at a certain point was just sort of resigned to the notion that I wasn't going to make it and it was just sort of out of my control but luckily we got on the plane at some point and um you know, I was I was getting reports even on the plane about like, OK, they're going to start. And at that point, I was also like, OK, no big deal. I'll miss the first few songs. It's not the end of the world. I'll just be happy to be there. So I landed at O'Hare, jumped in a cab, sped there as quick as I possibly could. But by that point, um, they would already gone through the rain delay or the, the rain delay had already started, basically. So that the band had gone on stage. They had played you know the uh, the first seven songs, and then the the severe weather came rolling in um, by the time I got there, it was probably I don't know maybe forty five minutes or an hour into the rain delay. Um, luckily, I was able to you know have some beverages backstage, be dry, and just kind of be a fly on the wall as you know management personnel were running around trying to figure out okay. Uh, The storm's maybe going to pass in X amount of time, so we'll plan to be back on stage at X o'clock. And, um, you know, just watching that was kind of fascinating. Like, all of the work and attention to detail that has to go into uh, putting on a show of this magnitude and keeping a crowd of that size safe, which, of course, we all know is absolutely paramount uh, to the way Pearl Jam does things. So, you know, I just was sort of like... Standing back and watching this all unfold. And then eventually, of course, uh, the skies clear up. We went back out onto the field. Uh, Eddie sings all the way. Ernie Banks shows up. The place goes berserk. And, you know, the the show sort of starts over. And I don't know. At a certain point in the show, I found myself like way up high, stage left, um, on some kind of platform. Uh, just looking out, you know, into the field and into the stands and watching the guys play through the songs. And it was a very, very powerful experience because um, it, it was just something kind of magnificent about it. And being able to have that vantage point for part of the set is definitely an unforgettable memory.
2: Did you get a chance to interact with anyone in the band during the ring delay? Did you get to Get a chance to to see like what their frame of mind was or anybody in the inner circle
3: Yeah, that that night I did not I I wanted to let them deal with what they needed to deal with Mm -hmm. Um that because there were you know, so many friends and family there and the backstage facilities at Wrigley are pretty tight So, um, there was a lot going on and I did not want to add to any stress or be in the way so I uh, I had some wine had a few slices of pizza, stood back, hung with my friends, and, um, yeah, just tried to keep out of the way.
2: What about uh, afterwards? Did you did you stay for the whole thing and get a chance to to stick around? And, like, were you on the stage for that whole show?
3: Not for the whole show. I watched, I don't know, maybe half of it from up there, but I was with a group of people uh, that I also wanted to watch with from down on the field. Um, I don't know. I mean, the the interesting thing about this particular set is that it was it was kind of you know, thrown into disarray due to the delay because there were a bunch of songs on the printed set list that didn't get played. Other songs that were sound checked that weren't on the written set or in the actual set. But we had two debuts from Lightning Bolt, which had only even been announced as coming out uh shortly before this, and there was no track list announced even at that point. So um, no one knew what, no one knew that there was going to be a title track to Lightning Bolt. Um, no one had heard of Future Days. It was kind of interesting. I, I had, I had heard the album at that point and was familiar with it. So when they started playing Lightning Bolt, I was like, holy crap. Like, I hope the crowd realizes like what they're seeing right now, because this is a brand new song being played for the first time in the midst of this, like already crazy show. So, um, you know, you have those two debuts thrown in there. You got a bunch of weird stuff like bubs. You have a lot of covers, but like some of the best in the catalog, like Crown of Thorns, Mother, um, of course, and with Rocket in the Free World. So at the end of the night, we we hung out on the field for a little bit, went backstage, had a little bit more food and a few more drinks, and um, just kind of processed the enormity of the night we had just experienced. And... um, I wanted the band to be able to enjoy that with their friends and family, so I, I didn't try to like hang or anything like that. I was I was just with my crew, uh, having my own great time, and uh, off we went into the night at God knows however late it was.
0: Yeah, they they said let's play till two, and and yeah, they certainly did. That it was it was a crazy night. Where do you see it, like among you know the big moments that the band has had in their history? You mentioned Soldier Field before. Uh, and there are a few other obvious ones like Pink Pops and uh uh Benaroya and they're they're all over the place. All the MSG shows. Where do you where do you think that the Wrigley the the debut at Wrigley stands like among you know maybe their most important shows?
3: Yeah, so as a thing that Pearl Jam did, I put it, you know, pretty high. It's an all timer. Um I, I listened to the show recently and you know, it's a great show. It, there's amazing energy going on, and you there's a palpable sense of like there's there being something special happening. But as a performance, I don't know that it quite reaches the point of like this is one of the greatest shows the band's ever played. But as See, a thing, that's they- where that's. I was wondering if you were going to say
0: that because that's all. That's the points that that I had when we talked about it. The show, uh, it, it didn't have the set list itself could have been so much more than what it was like ending the set from black to rocking in the free world. Like how do you not play better man in a spot like that? How do you not get alive in there? Seemed like there was so much more that could have been added to all that. And, and time was certainly a factor, but you You talked about,
2: you said there was a, there was like a Danny clinch picture where there was some extra songs on the set list or something. Maybe that's,
3: yeah, I mean, so the daughter was on the set list. Better Man, Alive, Baba, Ledbetter, um, and then there were a bunch of weirdo songs like Other Side, um, Sleight of Hand, Man of the Hour, Speed of Sound. But, like makes sense why they didn't play some of those more like down tempo ones. But um, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing because it's sort of the show that was, and also the show that never was. Um, we'll, we'll never quite know what it would have been like had they played uninterrupted from start to finish, but instead we kind of have this interesting hybrid show where the you know the playbook went out the window and it just was what it was so everyone who was there I think enjoyed it for the experience that it was as something to go back and listen to you know I don't know that it's an all timer but that's okay you know that's the great thing about this band is that um, sometimes shows are special for strange and wonderful reasons. And I think this is a great example of that. Um, it's, it's, it's just, you, you can't make up a scenario like this for a show of this type and it'll always go down in history for those special reasons.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, look, I, I, I was there. I remember everything that you were saying to, and, and I didn't have the perspective that, that you had obviously, but just being there And, you know, being among all of the people in the crowd waiting to get back as, as it poured was just, you know, I think that experience led to that night being more memorable than almost anything that they would have performed.
3: Yeah, exactly. There was, there was sort of this spirit in the venue of like, we're all in this together now Mm -hmm. and we're, we're not leaving until someone drags us out. And the wait was worth it because, as I mentioned, I don't think there'll ever be a Pearl Jam show like this again.
0: No, no. And, and when they kind of came close in 2018, even then, I, I don't think that that show was able to get the same – set list like the the same amount of songs and i don't think they were able to play till two on that night i think they only played till like twelve thirty one o'clock so yeah that it's i don't foresee them ever doing something like that again yeah um that same year you know you mentioned lightning bolt coming out uh i remember on the tonight show uh you guys had a full week, and it was Pearl Jam week, and you invited a couple guests on to perform some covers. I believe uh, Chris Cornell played with the Avid Brothers, yes, uh, to do Footsteps. Um, uh, Fleet Foxes did Corduroy, and yes. there was one other, and I can't remember w- what it was. I think
3: it was uh, Dirk, wanna... Dirk's. Dirk Bentley played alive with Mike McCready.
0: That's what it was. Yes, so. What uh so was this this had to have been your idea, right?
3: Yes, it was my idea. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I mean, this just... is me so you know, during the I, I worked on on the show for six years and I really tried not to let my own personal music taste interfere too much in the bookings, but once in a while um I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do something like this where, you know, I could indulge my love of a particular band and put something really special together. So um Yeah, you mentioned the lineup and, um, you know, in retrospect, not that it wasn't special at the time, but the the Chris Cornell performance, I think, takes on a lot of added gravitas after the fact because this was also sort of a full circle moment for him Um, performing footsteps which existed in a different form on the Temple of the Dog record.
0: Times of Trouble, of course.
3: Exactly. Um, Chris had never played the Pearl Jam version before. And um, to do it with the Avid brothers added something really, really uh, unique to it as well. And, you know, I think um, the significance was not lost on Chris that day. Um, he and I did a separate interview, which I believe is still on YouTube, um, just kind of talking about his memories of even hearing the Pearl Jam version of Times of Trouble for the first time, and being kind of bewildered, like, wait a minute, we already recorded that song, and now there's a different song? And um, to, you know, I guess, what, 20 years later, 21 years later, um, to have him perform it, um, I don't know, it it was just really, really, uh, really, really wonderful. And um I look back on that as, as truly one of the more special moments of my time on the show.
0: That performance is fantastic. If anybody out there hasn't listened to that performance, I mean, obviously, you know, since the three years since Chris has passed it, it means so much more now. But, yeah, go out, go out and find it on YouTube, and I'm sure we'll post it over the week on social media. But uh, was there... And, and I'm curious uh, as to some of the other acts there. Were there acts that, that you had specifically in mind for this? And did you let them come up with their own idea for what songs they wanted to perform? Or were you saying, hey, let's kind of keep it to the hits? Or what, how did all how'd that all go down?
3: Yeah. So, you know, Footsteps and Chris, that was just sort of like – the, the fan in me uh, thinking wouldn't this be amazing if he would consider playing this particular song because of the the long backstory and significance um robin pecknold from fleet foxes chose corduroy that was the one that he wanted to do and dirks bentley wanted to do Alive that was i i if i recall correctly his favorite pearl jam song and to have mike join him for it kind of you know brought it all home um i will tell you guys and I'm not sure I've ever really shared this detail before, but Bruce Springsteen was confirmed to participate that week. Um, oh, my. Wow. Unfortunately, he was not able to for personal reasons. But um, there was a, a short period of time there where, you know, you could probably picture me jumping up and down in my office <laughs> thinking of, thinking about what that possibly yeah. would have been like. So we, we can only dream, but um, – He was going to do it until, um, you know, some some things came up that uh, prevented him from being able to do so. But just a little fun fact there for the listeners. Did it get to the point where he had picked a song? Yeah. Yeah, He had had not picked a song yet. Um, So the the mystery is even more deep in that respect. We'll we'll never know what it may have been. Well, we'll just have to get Bruce
0: on the show and and, and just ask him. <laughs> yes, go for it. Uh, but, um, is there is there something that you were thinking in your head? Like if I were to ask Bruce any Pearl Jam song, and obviously you would let Bruce pick his own thing. It's it's Bruce. He, he'll he'll do it, and it'll be fantastic. But was there was there one that you were really hoping that would work for him?
3: Well, I was kind of thinking Better Man because he had played it before. Mm -hmm. Um, So that seemed sort of like the logical one. And, you know, it started to become a little bit of a dream of like, well, listen, if he would do that, maybe Ed would join him. And then, boy, we really have something out of this world at that point. Um, But uh, I didn't want to get ahead of myself. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't because, as I mentioned, it, it didn't come to fruition. So, you know, no harm done there. But um it, it's sure fun speculating now, after the fact, what it could have been.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, that's, you know, to to even know that that was a possibility that is just mind boggling. Like that could have been one of the, I don't want to, I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> it, it could have been one of the all time tonight show performances, but that's, I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut. Um so uh, they did a couple other stints on t- the Tonight Show in I think it was 2011 around the time that the movie came out and yes. they performed all night with the Roots and they I think they performed Olay at one point. Was that I, I was that their first stint on Fallon or did, did yes. they do one when Backspacer came out?
3: No, yep, that was the first one. Uh, okay, they, they did SNL on Backspacer. Oh, um, that's right. Okay. And they had done and, Conan, the, the first Conan yes, show. Yes, that, that's exactly show, yeah. right. Yeah, they they played some on Conan. Um, so yeah, so you know we had made some overtures to see if they wanted to come down and mess around around Backspacer, but you know they were focused on SNL, so um, that was that was politely declined. But when the time came to do some promo for the movie and for the book, um, they agreed to come on and. You know, I think there was some thought initially like, well, geez, maybe they'll play like a super old classic, you know, because here we are celebrating 20 years. But in true Pearl Jam fashion, they debuted a brand new song. (laughs) They played a kind of pretty rare like outtake with The Roots. And then the next week they covered Mother as part of our Pink Floyd tribute week. So those three performances over the course of those two weeks um, are pure Pearl Jam in that way. They were very idiosyncratic and and um, very unpredictable, but very wonderful.
0: Back in January, uh, they announced that Gigaton is coming out, and you got to witness kind of a special listening party with that. So, uh, why not you? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that and how that all went, and just you know, like what was it like hearing all these new
3: songs? Sure. So. Um you know we've sort of alluded earlier in this interview to the idea that the band really does not like to do a lot of promo or press um they're always very proud of the music they put out but they just don't really enjoy the process of promoting it or talking about it so when i heard that they were thinking about doing an event like this and that you know some of the band would maybe be there in person i realized that boy they must really really be happy With this new batch of music because normally they would just let the music do the talking but um, if they want to be there personally for it then it must really be special so um, you know I I was out in LA um, I was covering this event for Variety and um, it was at a place called Noya house which is basically just kind of an event space um, I've produced events there before in my work with the David Lynch Foundation, but it was all tricked out with um, Dolby Atmos so that we could hear the music in like the most uh, high fidelity possible. Um, there were a few people from the industry there. Um, you know, This was right ahead of the Grammys, so there were a lot of people in town. But I don't know that there were very many fans there. I, I want to say that Tim Bierman was able to sneak in a few lucky people to, to have the experience which is amazing and you know um, Ed spoke uh, Monty Lipman spoke who's the head of Republic uh, to which uh, the band's label is partnered and the lights dropped and the music started and I looked over to my left to discover that I was sitting next to Ed and we hadn't <sighs> seen each other in a little while and Ed had a bottle of tequila. Pretty soon we were doing some shots. (laughs) He was, you know, whispering in my ear at certain points during the songs telling me little details. At one point he kind of like, you know, gave me an elbow during a part in super blood wolf moon. That's, that's his guitar part that he was really proud of. Um, so that just, you know, took the experience to a whole other level and we were able to spend some time afterward and chat as well. So, you know hearing the music i had been lucky to have heard um a handful of the songs already but it was very out of context so hearing them in the way that the band intended in the correct order and of course in that incredible sound um you know mad props to josh evans on that um it, it was you know it it's it was an experience that i've always relished is that first listen to a new record and it had been Gee, seven years since Lightning Bolt, so I had almost kind of forgotten what that was like. But boy, was I reminded quickly of just the power and magic of this band. Uh, being able to hear the music for the first time in that setting—yeah,
0: I mean, the the whole album. It seemed like there was something special going on. You, you mentioned that they don't usually do press for something like this, and you know, for them to be available and and nudging you during the songs and telling you little bits and pieces about the song like it it, it kind of speaks to how how proud they are and i'm i'm wondering if you've spoken to them since uh you know the 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 tour was canceled and and everything went down and and if there's a sense of disappointment from them and i would i would assume probably uh you know i think that everybody there's a sense, of, a sense of it in the air. But um, did did this feel like something that they were going to go out on this tour, and it was it was going to be something different, or were we going to see something that we may n- not have seen from them before, or maybe haven't seen since uh, a couple tours back?
3: So yes, I've I've been able to get some insight into the headspace both right before the decision to cancel happened and then afterward. And they were rehearsing, they had learned how to play all the songs. By all accounts, they were sounding incredible. And they were so psyched to start incorporating these songs into the set list. Um, You know, I I think the guys have mentioned that they had trucks en route to the tour opener uh, when the decision was made to, to call it off. So, of course, it was a huge disappointment to them. Um, they were really, really excited to get out there and play these songs, and you know, do you know a proper tour for the first time in in several years. So now it's just sort of being patient and biding time until it's safe, and we'll sort of have a do-over whenever that is, and um, these songs will come back to life in a new way.
2: Yeah, it's like they were kind of the first domino to fall in the music industry. Of like, they were right out front saying, "Yeah, we're gonna go ahead and postpone this. We don't think it's safe." Do you? I mean, did you think that that was like kind of a kind of a, a leader for the rest of the industry and the rest of the bands to kind of wake up and be like, "Hey, this thing is gonna be serious if Pearl Jam is is postponing this tour."
3: Yeah, there's no question about it, and I I certainly don't think they thought of it that way. But it's another example of this band leading by example. And doing what they feel is right regardless of the circumstances and by doing so they accomplished exactly what you just said they they set an example for what's important amid what's going on in the world right now and as powerful as music is and as wonderful as that live concert experience is um, sometimes other things have to take precedent and that was the band's decision. And then I applaud them for being out there at the forefront and taking a stand on it and hopefully making it easier for other artists to make the same decision.
2: Well, we, we talk about it too. Like think about how amazing it's going to be when they finally get to come back, what kind of catharsis that's going to be like, it's, it's, that next tour, whenever it comes back, is gonna be right up there with these with these Wrigley shows with that two thousand North American leg, with the ninety five leg. It's gonna be a new era kind of, but it's it's gonna be just as emotional as it's ever been.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, leave it to Pearl Jam to somehow get to another level in terms of what this music means to people. And unfortunately we are dealing with, you know, a once in a generation Problem in the world right now But just the solace of knowing that At some point we will be able To be in a room watching this band play live um, It's just It can sometimes keep you going on a rough day
0: Yeah, absolutely I mean, we've, we haven't we have stopped Doing the show for a week Because it, 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 you're right It, it just kind of helps you get through and, and listening back to all the old shows And just talking about them It's, it, it's something to do while while waiting and uh you know not not really much else happening right now so um well uh thanks for thanks for joining us i i great insight on the the book and great insight on wrigley i don't john do you have anything that you wanted to ask him i think uh,
2: yeah i'll just piggyback on that thank you so much like some great stories i'll just say you know we we always talk about on our show when we cover these these live shows if there are certain moments that stand out, like from all the shows that you've been to, or is there, are there one or two moments that really stand out even from the nineties or from Wrigley or from anything? Is, are there a couple that really stand out to you as being like super, you know, powerful or anything like that?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, Hunger strike with Chris uh, in Santa Barbara in 2003, which at that point I think was the first time, they had played that song since Lollapalooza, so over a decade mm-hmm. at that point. And then I also think back to Bridge School 2014. I was very lucky to be on the side of the stage when Chris came out and performed that song again with the guys. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, something about those two moments as as sort of bookmarks of an era, that really sticks with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, goodness, I, I've been lucky enough to see... Uh, Ed and Stone perform "Daughter" at a at a private event in in tribute to someone who's been very very important in the band's life behind the scenes. That was in 2017, um, in front of maybe a couple hundred people. Um, that was that was unbelievably special. But uh, just as special was you know standing at the back of Tad Gormley Stadium in New Orleans in '95. Uh, with a raging mosh pit happening in front of me and, um, you know, the band opening with Animal and just kind of like blowing my head off. Um, I had driven from Indiana down there with three other friends. I think that drive was something like sixteen or seventeen oh, hours, yeah. <laughs> and we 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 yeah. turned around after the show and drove right back. Oh. Which was just insane. But that you know that's that was the ze- the zeal that a Pearl Jam fan had to have to see them live at that point. And it was kind of like just n- no sweat off my back at that point. If that's what it took to <laughs> experience them live, then that's what i did so uh those are those are just a few that really stick out to me the garden shows are always special because i've lived in new york for 22 years so being able to hop on the subway and go see this wonderful band uh is always a thrill um gosh let me see what else um do you know how many you've seen in total cuz it seems
0: like you're you're probably up there in the 60s, yeah. 70s, 80s. Oh,
3: I'm, I'm way past that. I but I've completely <laughs> lost track. I'm I'm probably somewhere in the 130s. Wow. Um but I I just absolutely stopped counting at a certain point. There was there's no way to keep track of it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably reconstruct it um by looking at set lists and calendars, but
0: do you do you know is is there anything from an album that that you haven't seen? before is there like one thing that one thing you're never been able to catch. Yeah.
3: Honestly, I don't think so anymore. Um, we've ticked them all off. I mean, seeing 10 in its entirety in Philly in 2016 was, was a huge bucket list thing. Um, that, that was unbelievable. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of some, some other highlights. Um, I saw Ed and C average open for the who at the house of blues in Chicago in 99. Mm -hmm. Um, I also saw Pearl Jam play there in 2002 before Riot Act without Stone, which is the only time oh, they've, they've oh, ever yeah. played a show with without the the full core band. That's right. Yeah. Um, so those were a couple of special other Chicago shows. Um, yeah. Uh, wow. the, the, we got memories flooding back now, but
1: those are two <laughs> fun ones I
3: recall. I mean, Ed, Ed played with the Average at the Tibetan Freedom Concert in Alpine Valley yeah. back in the day. That was another kind of rare and unusual thing. Um, Irving Plaza in 2006 was a really memorable show, um, you know, in a small setting. Uh, Pearl Jam also played the Beacon Theater. I want to say in two thousand eight. Yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah. Another really strange set list, but um, something super fun. Yeah, yeah. I could be rambling all night about this. So but then, <laughs> no, those are just it's... a few.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it, it seems like you've done it all, and 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 you know, just to know that there's stuff on the horizon that is going to be new. It's going to feel fresh. Is is you know, it's gotta, it's gotta feel refreshing for you.
3: Oh yeah. I can't wait. You know, I, I think, I I don't want to speak for the fan base as a whole, but I think Gigaton was really a surprise to a lot of people who maybe had not been all that stoked about the last couple studio records and who suddenly rediscovered their love of this band through that body of work. And that as the impetus for shows, whenever they happen, I think is going to be really, really amazing.
0: Can't wait for it. And, uh, hope, hopefully we'll get to see it. These shows, you know, once, whenever the, the makeup dates, uh, get announced, hopefully we'll be seeing you there. So, uh, thanks again for, for doing this and coming on and, and telling all these great stories. You have a whole back catalog of fantastic stories. And I'm sure If we get to something like the New Orleans show or any of the other ones that you mentioned, I'm I'm sure we can give you a call and and, and maybe we can get you back on again. That would be great.
3: That would be great, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So
0: that was fantastic. Jonathan told so many good stories. And uh, look, you can only get that perspective from very few people and I don't think we've had anybody really on the show that's had that you know that that has sort of been this close with the band that 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 has been able to speak with them like that so I mean just just that he was able to get through all of those moments and and being able to talk to them was was fantastic and share that with us oh yeah man like
2: it's gonna take a couple of listens to go back and and unpack everything that that he was talking about. Like, yeah I we we just talked to him and I'm I'm still I can't wait to go back and listen to it again and and, and hear some of the stories again. But oh yeah, he's he's an amazing writer, amazing journalist go go check out all his stuff. Um if you don't already have the Pearl Jam book, What Are You Doing? Um it's amazing. I'm sure you can still find it around. But
0: it's cheap now. It's like twenty yeah, bucks on Amazon, yeah. I think.
2: Yeah, but just yeah, again we we thank him so much for for taking the time out and 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 talking to us. It was just great stories, and yeah, we we'll hopefully we'll get to have him back on again at some point.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's it's just you know from an overall perspective and what we've been doing, been able to do the last couple of weeks, getting these kind of guests, being able to get Stephen Hayden and uh, getting John Evans last week. Like you know, it's been. Incredible to just talk to these people and get their get their side of the story and get their their takes on on this band that we've been sitting here for two years just blabbering on about. I feel like I know nothing now compared to you know to these guys. It just it's it's kind of amazing in comparison. But it's 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 good to know that there are people out there that are you know that have been part of this. Uh, community or whatever you want to call it that, you know, have been so intertwined with the band that can, that can bring that passion into things like publishing books and publishing articles uh, before the album comes out for Gigaton and things like that. So again, like all the thanks in the world goes out to, to both Jonathan Cohen and all of our guests that, that we've had on the show so far. And um, should we give a little spoiler as to who the next guest is going to be for Wrigley Month?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, these people who listen to this whole thing, they deserve something for that.
0: I think so. So, um, you probably know the voice of our next guest. He is a pivotal member of the Sirius Radio uh, Pearl Jam Network, uh, Channel 22, and he's the voice that you hear every time before you listen to a bootleg uh, when you're listening to the station. It's the Rob. It's Rob Bleetstein and, and he talks about the show, and he'll talk about, you know, the best moments and, and things like that, and uh, we're going to have him on. We're going to have him and uh, a friend, Bob Krauss on who's a Chicago native, and they did a couple of really interesting things that uh, we're going to get into and uh, stuff that I don't really know about, uh, but there are things that that happened in Chicago, and, and I'm excited to just learn all of those things, that, what went down, those weeks at Wrigley that, that we don't have that information for So yeah, Rob Bleatstein's coming on the show. It's uh, looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, like the, the guests just keep coming.
2: Yeah. I mean, this has been, this has been a big month and it's not over yet. Yeah, so and we've, and we've still got the the episode where we're going to be telling all of your stories. Absolutely. So and you know we've been they've been rolling in. So thank you so much to everyone who's been who's been sharing those with us. Uh, if you if you still haven't done that and you've got a good story, whether it's something about the show, something around the show, something that happened after the show, a certain song, even if it's short, if it's long, uh, go ahead and send that to us live on fourlegspodcast at gmail That's the number four, and uh, and we'll read it on the on that episode.
0: Yeah. We'll probably take stories up until about the 25th of the month. So, you know, we still have a lot of time. There's still about two weeks before, uh, uh, you know, we're, you know, the, the deadline crosses, but, uh, yeah, get them in, let us know. We already have a bunch so far. It's going to be a really interesting and an emotional episode. I'm, I'm sure. Cause we've gotten so many passionate, passionate emails being sent to us. So if you want to be a part of that, just, uh, shoot us over an email as well. And, uh, I'm sure there are going to be things that are going to be left off of the conversation that we spoke with, uh, with Jonathan today. And if they are, they're going to be in our Devo Patreon special episode. So head on over to patreon.com slash live on four legs. If you want to contribute to the show and you'll be able to get some really awesome bonus material f- from, uh, uh yeah, from our conversation with him and and john why don't you tell them what else they can get over at patreon
2: yeah we've got the evolution episodes where we uh we dive deep into a certain song and all about its history i think we have a tournament going on right now the people we do to
0: vote for please vote yes they've been do- you've yeah, been you doing do. really well on twitter but the patrons we need the votes from the patrons people
2: yeah you get a chance to uh to vote for which song you want us to cover uh, so yeah, check that out, and uh, and yeah, we'll be we'll be getting back into that. We've also got our bridge school episodes uh, that we're going to be covering. We're going to have the night two of of nineteen ninety nine coming soon, so uh, be on the
0: lookout for that. Train just keeps rolling, man. You know, it's it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon, and uh, we got we got to figure out what we're going to do in in August and September and get back to the, the around the world series and. And yeah, just, just keep going until we actually get this tour back on the road. And, uh, like I said, be magical when, when that all happens. So until then stick around tomorrow, we'll have our second night of Wrigley, 2016, all of you old school live on four legs fans out there that remember Matt being my co-host and the co-host of the show for all of that time, he's coming back and, him and john are probably going to fight so it's probably oh, there's, there's it.
2: a chance there's a chance not all three of us make it out of that podcast
0: yeah i, I i'm gonna have to ref this shit and boy <laughs> oh i don't know how to prepare myself but it's gonna happen and it should be pretty entertaining so check that out on tomorrow and uh and we shall see you then so Uh, This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, I miss you already. And I miss you always from Randy and John. Thanks again to our guest, Jonathan Cohen, for coming on the show. And we'll we'll just keep this train rolling for for tomorrow and keep the Wrigley content coming until the month is through. So we'll see you next time.
2: See you tomorrow.